Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Well, even the surge in oil stocks was not enough to keep the U.S. stock market in the black today. The Dow Jones finished in the red by 165 points. That is a drop of 0.68%. But the broader markets, which don't have uh, the exposure to the energy sector, fared much worse. You had the a composite down 116 points, 1.5%, and the Russell 2000 down almost 1.7%. Oil prices had a huge day today. They closed off the highs, but still up $1.80. 72.33 per barrel for the price of oil. We did get as high as 73.06 on West Texas earlier today. So this is a new high for the year. Remember, this is what saved the market and helped it avoid an eight-day losing streak when we got that that ninth-day rally thanks to oil stocks. And I said at that time that I didn't think that was good news for the markets because higher oil prices may be good for oil companies, but they're not good for the overall economy. And they're even higher now, and it's going to be an even bigger drag on the economy You know, more important, too, than the oil price in dollars is the oil price in euros, which continued to weaken against the dollar and other currencies. You know, the dollar index had another strong day. We're back above the 95 handle, 95.26. I think this is where the resistance is for the dollar. So I don't expect much headway above 95 on the dollar index. I still think that The markets have this all wrong, that a trade war is not a positive for the dollar. So everybody that's betting that all of these trade tensions escalating, that this is somehow dollar positive, they are wrong. Just like the people who are betting that larger budget deficits are dollar bullish. Both of these events are dollar bearish, as the dollar bulls are soon going to find out. But in the meantime... 
the increasing price of oil is going to send eurozone inflation blowing through the 2% ceiling. I have talked about that on this podcast. They don't have a 2% target in the eurozone like we supposedly have in the United States. Here, the Fed is targeting 2%. They've even said they're targeting higher than 2% to be symmetrical around 2%. But in the eurozone, 2% is the ceiling. That's why Draghi keeps saying we want to get close to but below 2% because it's a hard ceiling. They're not allowed to go above it. Now, why they're trying to get close to it is beyond me because if you get too close to it, you're in danger of going above it. That's already happened in Germany where their year-over-year inflation is already above 2%. Uh, but it is going to go through it in the Eurozone quickly. In fact, we'll be at 2.5% in Germany uh, maybe in another couple of months. And once you're at 2.5%, you're closer to 3% or as close to 3% as you are to 2%. The Germans are not going to like that. The Bundesbank is not going to like that. So again, what the markets are underestimating is A, the impact of inflation. I went over this in the last podcast that in the stress tests that the Federal Reserve put the banks through, they don't even bother to stress for stagflation. They never assume that the inflation rate moves above 2% or that it has any impact on bond yields or the economy. So nobody is even thinking about inflation, much less worried about it. But I think that the European Central Bank is going to have to tighten monetary policy much sooner than everybody thinks because they are going to be dealing with an inflation problem that nobody is expecting. Whereas on our side of the pond, the Fed is going to be doing the opposite. Even though we're going to be dealing with higher inflation as well, we don't have a 2% ceiling. Uh, and we are willing to allow inflation to get worse if we need to prop up the economy because the rising consumer prices are going to weaken the economy, as will the uh, trade wars and all the other negatives that I have been talking about. In fact, we got more economic data out so far this week, almost all of it bad, pending home sales out today, down for the fifth consecutive month. That trend is going to continue. Durable goods down for the second consecutive month. You know, we got the Case-Shiller uh, home prices uh, this week, the slowest appreciation for an April since 2011. Both the Chicago Fed and Dallas Fed were weaker than expected. So the weakening data, you know, still you've got the uh, Atlanta Fed looking for 4.5% GDP growth. Again, I don't know what they're smoking. The, the consensus is about 3.5%. So the Atlanta Fed is still one full percentage point above everybody else. But I think everybody is still overestimating. You know, Trump Jr. was out tweeting today about the Atlanta Fed, bragging about how the Atlanta Fed's 4.5% forecast proves that all the experts were wrong because we're going to have all this growth according to the Atlanta Fed. I mean, maybe Trump Jr. ought to wait for the actual numbers. Maybe he doesn't understand the history of the Atlanta Fed and how they're always way above uh, what actually happens. And there were plenty of times when Obama was president that the Atlanta Fed was looking for GDP growth rates as strong as this. It's not like they haven't been overly optimistic in the past. I mean, if anything, uh, the Atlanta Fed is consistent. I think they were consistently overestimating growth under Obama, and they've been equally as consistent over Trump. So I think uh, Trump Jr. is a little quick on the draw here. 
to try to uh, claim credit for economic growth just based on a forecast by the Atlanta Fed. You know, Larry Summers was out today, and Summers said the Fed is too tight. He said the Fed is too obsessed with inflation that doesn't exist or isn't a threat. He said the real threat is the weakness in the economy and that the Fed raising rates to try to fight inflation that isn't as big a threat is more of a threat because the weakening of the economy is what we should be worried about. I think that is what is going to be playing out, especially if the weakness in the economy shows up in the stock market. In fact, the stock market is already weakening maybe before people can see that the economy has rolled over. I mean, today, for example, the Dow was up almost 300 points uh, intraday before closing at the low of the day, down 165. And that is a very weak day, technically, to have such a huge intraday reversal and to close on the exact low. I mean, this is uh, not a good sign for tomorrow. We are at the lowest close at 24,110 since April. And we made the lows uh, in April, and they're you know, somewhere in the um, 23,000s on the Dow. 23,300 and change was the low. 23,500 was the low in March. The February low is about 23,660. So, you know, around 23,400 is the absolute lows of the, the correction thus far. So there's not a lot of distance between where we are now and those lows. In fact, at the rate the Dow can move these days, we could be there this week. We could be there tomorrow. And if we take out those lows, there's not a lot of room beneath the market. I mean, the market could quickly drop. The Dow can get down maybe another 2,000 points very quickly down to around 22,000, and we would be dangerously close to a 20% decline if we hit uh, 22,000. You know, the S&P 20% or more of the S&P 500 is already in a bear market, meaning that 20% of the stocks have already fallen 20% from their highs. And one of the weakest sectors is the financials, which I think is a leading indicator for a bubble economy. I mean, look at Deutsche Bank. I've been talking about that company for a couple of years now on the podcast. Another all-time record low today. Stock down 3.7%. 10.38 is the close. This is the banking canary in the coal mine uh, for problems in the banking sector, not just in Europe, but here in the United States. So Deutsche Bank leading all of the banks lower today. In fact, I think we had a, a point where we had 12 consecutive days where an index of bank stocks was down. And that's never happened before. So we broke a record for losing streaks in the financials. And, you know, you don't want to see that if you're bullish on the stock market. So I think that if the stock market keeps coming down and inflation keeps coming up, something is going to have to give. Now, either maybe it's going to be Donald Trump. He maybe could surrender in the trade war. But I don't think that is within Trump. I don't think Trump really wants to back down on his tough talk uh, with China and everybody else. So the only thing that may save the markets from rolling over into a bear market would be if the Fed uh, actually listens to Larry Summers or if Larry Summers' comments uh, are an indication of what's coming at the Fed and the Fed comes out and changes the game. See, one way that the market could stop falling would be for the Fed to throw it a lifeline by uh, you know, backing off of the rate hikes. Now, 
Right now, the Fed has given no indication that it's going to do that. In fact, everybody is convinced that the Fed doesn't care about the markets, that the put is gone, that it expired, and there is no pal put, and he's fine letting the market go down. Yeah, I don't believe that. I don't believe that the Federal Reserve chairman, uh, with Trump as president, and how much stock Trump has already put into the stock market, I don't think that they're going to sit by and let the stock market unravel, because also... There is a good chance that a bear market in stocks is signaling a recession, that the stock market weakness is just an early sign of overall economic weakness. And the economy is already long overdue for a recession. Uh, and so we're going to get one sooner rather than later. And if the stock market is now in a bear market, that's a pretty good indication that a recession is going to follow Shortly, and you know, from a political point of view, this is going to be terrible for Trump and the Republicans because you really want to get the recession out of the way really early in your term so that by the time there's an election, you're already out of the recession and you can claim credit for the growth. The problem is Trump claimed credit for the economy before the recession. And in fact, Trump wasted the tax cuts. Right? Because the tax cuts were enacted before the recession. He didn't save up the ammunition to fight off the recession. He maybe delayed the onset of the recession by putting in the tax cuts. But now when the recession comes, he's going to get blamed for it. And of course, by launching a, a, a trade war, clearly when the economy tanks, he has really uh, basically given the Democrats a layup here uh, for blaming Trump for the recession, for the bear market, because they can say it's all because of the trade war that you started. Right now, I think that the economy would already be in recession had Clinton won. I think Trump being elected uh, was enough of a game changer in the confidence. He was able to buy the economy some time before the recession began. But we were going to have it anyway. It's not that the trade war caused it. We were going to have it whether or not we fought the trade war or not. Now, maybe the trade war is going to make it worse. That I don't know is because it was already going to be horrific with or without the trade war. But having launched the trade war before the recession begins makes it very easy for the Democrats to blame Trump for the recession by saying you caused it with a trade war. You inherited a great economy and you screwed it all up. And that is going to be a very difficult uh, argument for the Republicans to win, especially since they, you know, came out and I've been warning about this on my podcast. They have been claiming so much false credit for a victory they haven't won, declaring that we have the greatest economy in the history of the country. And now all of a sudden that greatest economy goes into recession. Whose fault is that? You can't really blame it on Obama anymore because you already claim credit for solving all of the problems. Trump has already said that He's made America great again. So whatever problems he inherited, he's already claimed he solved them, which means if we have any new problems, they're brand new. They're problems that started under Trump, and he is going to take the blame. All the Republicans are going to take the blame. This is going to be a political disaster. In fact, an early warning sign of just how big a disaster this can be, we got that yesterday in a congressional primary in New York City. All right, you had a 10-term incumbent Democrat, 
right? The guy's been in Congress for 20 years, right? These guys are impossible to get rid of. Trying to get rid of them, I mean, it's like, you know, it's like herpes, right? You're stuck with it, right? These guys generally have to die before they, they're, they're not in office. I mean, nobody even usually opposes them. I think this guy had been unopposed uh, for 14 years. Uh, but a young woman, Alexandria uh, Ocasis-Cortez, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her, her name correctly. Uh, she's a Puerto Rican uh, born, so she's a countryman of mine. Uh, but now she lives in uh, New York. I live in Puerto Rico. So we swap places. But she's 28 years old. And she is going to be, if she wins, which she probably will, because there's no way a Republican is going to win this district. Uh, so when she wins, she will be the youngest woman ever elected to the House of Representatives. She's 28 years old. She is a, I guess, former bartender. She has no real political experience other than you know, being a member of the uh, Democratic Socialists of America, right? Democratic Socialists of America. And just to give you an idea of what the Democratic Socialists of America stand for, uh, I'm reading from their site. They believe in the abolition of capitalism in favor of an economy run by either the workers or the state. But, I mean, the, she is clearly... A, a socialist, whether she wants to call herself a democratic socialist or a socialist democrat. I mean, she was a Bernie Sanders volunteer, but I think she's even to the left of Bernie Sanders, right? And that's how she won this race. I mean, she was way to the left of the incumbent who she ran against, who also had the baggage of being a white man, which apparently is a big negative now in the Democratic Party. So being Hispanic woman, I mean, that, you know, gave her a leg up on uh, in, in this race. Uh, but she is very, very much a socialist. I mean, she campaigned on socialized medicine, right? Medicare for all, uh, free college for everybody, government guaranteed jobs for everybody, right? And this is going to be a congresswoman uh, representing a district in New York who is basically an outright Socialist. You know, there was somebody, I put this article on my Facebook page and, and somebody commented, no, she's not a socialist because, you know, she's not advocating that the government take over the means of production, right? That they nationalize all the industries and everything, which, I mean, she may believe that stuff. She's not advocating it. But you know what? If, probably if I could get her alone in a room, she's probably in favor of all that. But that's communism, right? You don't have to be a communist to be a socialist. Socialism is a broad term that includes a lot of different ideologies, communism being one of them, right? So you don't have to be a communist to be a socialist, but you have to be a socialist to be a communist because socialism is the broader category. So all communists are socialists, but not all socialists are communists. See, some socialists are fascists, and that's really what this woman is. She doesn't know it, but if you look at what she is espousing, it is fascism, which is a form of socialism. Again, fascism, uh, uh, the Nazi party was the National Socialist Party of Germany, right? Fascists are socialists. It started in Italy under Mussolini, but under socialism, the government doesn't outright nationalize every business. They take over businesses through taxation and regulation, which is exactly what pretty much Bernie Sanders wants to do, and it's exactly 
what a Cortez wants to do. They want to uh, take over the means of production, not by outright stealing them, uh, but by regulating them and by taxing them to basically have effective control and ownership by the government, even though legal title still remains uh, with private citizens. But the point is, this is the direction that the Democratic Party is moving. It is moving hard to the left, right? Just like the Republican Party moved to the right to elect Ronald Reagan and away from its tradition of Rockefeller Republicans like Richard Nixon or Gerald Ford or, you know, Rockefeller, who wasn't a president, but where that's where we got the expression, Rockefeller Republican, right? So we moved from the Rockefeller wing to the Barry Goldwater Ronald Reagan wing, which was, you know, a, a positive move for the Republican Party. Well, now in reaction to Trump, right, the Democrats are moving in the opposite direction. They are moving towards the left wing of the Democratic Party, the Bernie Sanders wing, the socialist wing. And this is the beginning. And it's not just that uh, you're going to see these socialist candidates winning in the primaries, but in order to fend off potential future challenges from the left, the incumbent Democrats that are already there are going to have to move left in anticipation of these challenges. Because the fact that this 20-year uh, leader, I mean, this guy was potentially being groomed to be the next speaker if he could have gotten rid of Nancy Pelosi. So he is a, a top-ranking uh, veteran Democrat in the House of Representatives going down to a novice, right, who outflanked him to the left because he was, you know, he was too much of a corporate shill in the pockets of uh, the donors, you know, maybe in the Hillary Clinton camp, and, and she was part of the Sanders revolution. So you got a lot of other Democrats who are running scared, right? They don't want to lose their cushy jobs. Uh, and, and so they're going to be moving left uh, to protect themselves from a challenge to the left. And this is a bigger problem because the Democrats may be the minority party now, but they are going to be the majority party by 2021, and they're going to have the White House as well, if I am correct on what I think is going to happen to the U.S. economy. And I'm pretty sure I am correct. I'm pretty sure that by the time voters step into the booth in 2020, we will still be in recession, and it's all going to be blamed on the Republicans and Trump and it's going to be the socialists who are going to be saying, vote for us because we're the party of change. We're going to make America great again by making America socialist. Right? That's going to be their motto. Socialism is no longer a dirty word. It is now everybody's salvation. Right? And I think Trump and the Republicans would have put the nails in their own coffin by basically branding this bubble economy as their own claiming credit prematurely for how great everything was. See, Trump won by being honest and telling the truth about how bad the economy was and promising to fix it. But then as soon as he got elected, he promised that it was already fixed when it wasn't, and it's just as bad, if not worse, than it's ever been. And he has set it up perfectly uh, for the socialists to come in as the last saviors left. Hey, we tried capitalism. That was a failure. So let's try socialism. What do we got to lose? Of course, we got a lot to lose, but the voters are too dumb to know that. Hey, just so people don't accuse me of always reporting negative news, we actually got something positive for a change today coming out of the Supreme Court uh, where they ruled uh, correctly. And the, the issue had to do with a 
government employee who did not want to be a member of a public union, but who was being forced to pay the dues anyway. And I don't remember what the amount was. I mean, 40 bucks a month or something like that. But he didn't want to pay the dues. And of course, the labor unions say, look, you got to pay the dues, right? Whether you want to be in the union or not, their argument is everybody who is a worker benefits from the union and they don't want any free riders, right? Because they bargain collectively and, hey, everybody's going to get the benefit of the bargain and therefore everybody has to pay whether they want to or not because otherwise we're going to have this free rider problem where people are going to want the so-called benefits of the union, but they're not going to want to pay for it. So they've been able to, you know, use these rules to force people to pay. And this guy, you know, didn't want to pay and he took it up to the Supreme Court and he won. And the Supreme Court said, no, you cannot force somebody uh, to be a member of the union. You cannot forcibly abstract, extract the dues from their pay. And this was rightly decided. This is a victory uh, for individual rights. But what I want to talk about is the broader issue of public sector unions, because we should not have public sector unions. They should be against the law. Now, first of all, you know, I am not against private sector unions, right? I mean, if individuals want to organize and bargain collectively, that's their right. I'm not saying that people in the private sector don't have a right to form a union. They do. But what they don't have a right to do is what unions do do today, and that is extortion. They don't have a right to basically tell employers, either you accept these terms or we're going to go on strike and we're going to prevent you from hiring any replacement workers. See, that's not right. They should be allowed to bargain collectively, but they can't hold a gun to the head of the employer because the employer should be free to say, you know what, we don't like the deal that you're offering. We're going to try to hire some new people to work on terms that you know we feel are, are a more you know acceptable to the market or more market friendly. And to the extent that the employers can find replacement workers who are willing to work under you know terms that are acceptable to the employer, then that should be fine. They should not be able to stop that, to make that illegal, to intimidate or otherwise, you know, try to scare off these so-called scabs and, and try to make it so they don't take these jobs. There's a lot of stuff that the unions do in the private sector that is wrong. But if they think that they can get a level playing field by bargaining collectively for their wages and their benefits, that's fine. They could do that. But they, they, they shouldn't be able to operate, let's, let, you know, in a way that is really amounts to legalized extortion, where they can put their employer in a position where they don't have a right uh, to then bring in non-union workers uh, if they think the union's demands are unreasonable. And so this has been a big problem. That's why, you know, labor unions are a much smaller part of the U.S. economy than they used to be uh, because they helped make their employers so inefficient that they drove them out of business. So uh, once you destroy the company, right, it's like these unions became parasites and eventually they killed the host. And so since the host is gone, there's, they can't survive either. And so the unions were dying off in the private sector, except the one place they didn't die off, the one place where they really uh, you know, grew and grew and grew is in the public sector. And that is where I have a problem. We should not have public sector unions. And you know who agrees with me or agreed with me? Franklin Delano Roosevelt, right? The big defender of labor unions, right? Labor unions really came to power 
uh, during the Roosevelt years, right? The Great Depression, the New Deal. But Roosevelt said it is impossible to bargain collectively with the government. He thought under no circumstances should public servants unionize. And I agree. This is an atrocity. It is an affront. And it needs to stop. Look, the whole premise of the labor unions was that private companies, right, were being greedy with their profits, that the workers, right, were helping to generate the profits and that they deserved a part of those profits. Now, of course, they didn't take the risks because they got paid wages for their labor. But nonetheless, there's this theory that, look, the workers are the ones responsible for the profits and the employers need to share the profits with the workers and that if left alone individually, no one worker could bargain for a profit share. But if they organize together as a group, that now they can get their fair share of these profits. Now, forget about the fact you know, that I disagree with that whole premise. Let's just accept it so now we can take a look at public sector unions. Right? The police department, the fire department, the, um, the public schools, they don't generate profits. There's no profits to get a share of. Right? These are governments providing public services. Nobody profits from that. So there's nothing to share. So when you are forming a union, you're not trying to get a share of the profits. You're just trying to force taxpayers to pay higher wages for your services. And the taxpayers don't really have a say in the matter because it is the labor unions negotiating with the politicians. They're not negotiating with the voters. They're negotiating with the politicians. And if they go on strike, it's not like the politicians lose anything, right? If, if, a, if a private sector worker, if the, they go on strike, the owner of the business is losing money because he's, you know, the, everything is shut down, right? He's not generating any revenues. But if government workers, if the teachers go on strike, the, the politicians that they're arguing with, they don't lose any money. They're not making a profit running the schools. It doesn't matter to them how long the schools are closed. The losers are the public. The public lose. Or the taxpayers lose because they're paying for teachers who aren't working. And so the kids aren't getting an education. This is not fair. I mean, these are issues that need to be decided by the voters, not by the labor unions. The labor unions shouldn't be able to dictate how much is spent on education or how much is spent on the police department or how much is spent on the fire department. You know, these people are public servants, right? If you go, are going to say that you're a public servant, then you serve the public. You don't hold the public hostage to your own greed. And if you don't like the salaries that are being paid by the public schools or by the fire department, then don't work there. Get a, get, a, get a job in the private sector. Nobody forces somebody to become a public servant. But if you are going to work for the government, then one thing you give up is your right to form a union. Because there, this is organized extortion of the worst order because the taxpayers and the public are the innocent victims of this process and they have nothing to do, they have nothing to say about it. I mean, here's how it works, especially here. I'm in the state of Connecticut. Connecticut is broke because of the public sector unions uh, that have bankrupted the state. And the way the process works is these unions represent a lot of people who are also voters. Right. And so they vote for the politicians that are sitting on the other side of the bargaining table. And not only do they vote for them, 
They provide a lot of resources to help them with their campaign. They provide a lot of volunteers to get out the vote. So when they are asking for a raise, they are asking for a raise from the very people who they put in their job. And the raise is payback for helping them get elected. But they also, it's not just a carrot, it's also a stick. Because now the public unions say, if you don't give us what we want, not only are we not going to give you more money so that you can stay in office, we are going to give money to your opponent so that you, you're out. We're going to pay the guys who will be against you. And so then we'll be able to negotiate with them and they're going to be in our pocket instead of you and they're going to rubber stamp these demands. So this is an incestuous process that continues. And that's why Connecticut cannot make any cuts to the overfunded or you know pay pensions and bloated salaries and overtime abuses of all the public workers, right? Because of the political ramifications, nobody has the guts to stand up to them. So it should not be allowed, right? Governments should not do this. Government employees should not be allowed to strike and hold the public and the taxpayers hostage to their own greed, right? Individual teachers and firemen should just you know, try to get the best pay they can from the government. And if they can't get a pay that they like, they should quit and get another job. And the other problem with these government sector unions is it makes it impossible, let's say, for the public schools to pay the good teachers more and weed out the bad teachers. They got to pay all the teachers the same, whether they're good or not. And, and, and this is horrible outcome for uh, the students who have no choice but to go to these lousy schools. So everybody suffers as a result of these public sector unions. So what would really be a victory is not this small step in the right direction, but we need to abolish these things. The problem is it is never going to happen because we'd have to vote to do it. And we're never going to be able to get the votes to do it because nobody is willing to stand up to the public sector unions uh, because of the political consequences of doing that. I might as well finish up this podcast as I've been doing quite a bit recently by talking about the cryptocurrencies. Uh, Bitcoin has been just hanging out right around the 6,000 level. It did get down to about 5,800 and change. That was a new low for the year. Uh, and then it quickly rallied back. I think there was about a five-minute period where it rallied about four or $500 to get back up to 6,200 and change. And ever since then, it's really been trading between 6,000 and change and maybe 6,300. So it's consolidating at the very low end of this range, right near the, the triple bottom. And, you know, there are a lot of people that are thinking, aha, this is the bottom, right? You know, 6,000 is the support. This is about the mining cost. And somehow the cost of mining is somehow relevant to the value of a Bitcoin. So I think a lot of people are, you know, looking at this and thinking that, aha, this is the bottom. And to me, that's too easy. I mean, if this really is the bottom, they're certainly giving too many people the opportunity to buy the bottom. I mean, normally the markets are not that generous. Normally, you got to act quickly to get in at the bottom, right? And, and if you don't act quickly, if you're too worried, you miss out. The fact that we've been hanging out here for so many days, giving anybody and their brother the opportunity to buy the bottom, if this is the bottom, makes me think it ain't the bottom. And, you know, another reason to think it's not the bottom is look at the other cryptocurrencies, which really continue to weaken. If you look at the the market share of Bitcoin, their dominance relative to the market, that's been steadily inching higher during this entire decline. And so I think that the 
you know, ability of Bitcoin to hold on to this so-called 6,000 support level is keeping people from noticing the fact that these other currencies continue to drift lower despite the fact that Bitcoin has, has found a bid. And I think it's just a matter of time here uh, before the bottom drops out and we head to a whole new level. I do think the opposite thing is going to happen with gold. I mean, the price of gold is just around 1250 now, 1252. Remember on my podcast, I mentioned some time ago when gold broke out of that narrow channel that it had been in. And I thought, you know, it was more likely that we would break to the upside. Well, we ended up breaking to the downside. And after that happened, I said that I thought there was some risk that gold could pull back to 1250. And that's pretty much exactly what it did. I don't think there's much uh, downside below 1250 uh, for the price of gold. So I do think it's a good buy here. And I think the gold stocks are confirming that. The gold stocks have been very strong. It's not that they've really gone up much, but they haven't gone down either. Uh, you know, in the face of these falling gold prices. And this has been a pretty reliable indicator over the last several years on both directions, right? So when gold prices rise, but gold stocks don't confirm the rise by, by going up, that's generally meant that gold was about to decline. And in the reverse, when gold is going down, but gold stocks don't confirm the decline by also, you know, going down, that's generally marked the bottom in the price of gold. So I think that we are bottoming out at around 1250 and I think you know if maybe we can have a coincide you know big rally in the price of gold that would be yet another reason uh, for the bottom to drop out of the crypto market and also if we're about to have another leg down in the stock market right if we're going to break through the lows and move lower in stocks I do think that it's more likely that the cryptocurrencies will follow other risk assets down right rather than following a true safe haven asset like gold up. And this will kind of prove conclusively that Bitcoin is not a safe haven, that it is not a store of value, that it is a risk asset. And in fact, it's the riskiest of assets, or not just Bitcoin, but all the cryptocurrencies. It's crypto risk. That's really what it is. There is no safety. There is no store of value. They are purely speculative vehicles, and people can gamble on their direction. And there's a lot of people who have been gambling uh, that these cryptocurrencies are going to go up. Uh, and, you know, I think they're all betting wrong. And I still keep watching. You know, I watch this Fast Money now. I, I didn't used to watch it very much, but I've been watching it now uh, just to see what they have to say about Bitcoin. And they talk about it every single day. It's like part of the show. It's like they have a whole Bitcoin segment and they keep bringing out new people to talk about why the bottom is in, right? And why Bitcoin's going to rally and why all this institutional money is going to be coming in. They keep bringing in one guy after another. And then, of course, they got Brian Kelly, who's always there, right? Talking about how great Bitcoin is and about how you shouldn't worry about it going down. I mean, I don't know, you know, how this started. I mean, were these some huge whales that are, you know, that are advertising? I don't see any ads for Bitcoin when I watch it, uh, but they're completely, uh, you know, taken by it. They're, they're, they're completely involved in it. And when it goes down, they don't understand, you know, and it seems like the entire program is designed to get people to buy. And, and if you own to prevent you from selling. Now, I think uh, CNBC is doing an incredible service to the people who got in early. I mean, these guys, I mean, they owe uh, CNBC a lot. I bet that CNBC is keeping a lot of people in the market that otherwise wouldn't be there. And if Bitcoin is already down 70% with all the CNBC touting, 
Imagine how low it would be if that wasn't there, if they weren't, you know, bringing all these new suckers into the market so that the early adopters could get out, right? But they are doing an incredible disservice to their audience. They did not cover Bitcoin like this when it was $10 a Bitcoin, $20, $100, $1,000. I mean, Bitcoin was there. Bitcoin was in the news, right? But no, they didn't. They, they rarely talked about it every once in a while. But now it's a daily occurrence where all they do is talk about it. And it's always from a positive perspective. Like, oh, why is it going down? Oh, Bitcoin has fallen. Is this the bottom? They never talk about, hey, was this a bubble? You know, is this thing going to continue to collapse because, you know, it's overpriced and it, it never should have got to 20000 and 6000 is almost as ridiculous as 20000 just not quite as ridiculous? No, they never bring anybody on to talk about the fact that none of these cryptocurrencies have any value whatsoever. They've legitimized everything. They've legitimized the technology. They've legitimized the investment merits. And they're just studying all these cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and Ether, as if they were actual stocks. And they're just going through a bear market, but the fundamentals are bright. They're trying to encourage people to hold on and, and ride out the volatility because the future is bright and everything is going to be great. When did they just accept onto this, right? How did they all of a sudden decide uh, that this is all legitimate, that, you know, that the people that believe in these currencies and in their future, they're all right? Because the guys that, that think it's all a bunch of nonsense, the guys that think it's a bubble, it's tulip mania, it's a, they're never on the show. You know, they, they don't come on. In fact, if anything, they laugh at those guys, right? They talk about why they don't get it. You know, they've got an axe to grind. They're part of the establishment that Bitcoin is disrupting. I mean, the entire program has bought on uh, to that um, narrative hook, line, and sinker. So we'll see how long uh, they stay with this uh, because, you know, at some point they're going to have to give it up. Uh, but I think they're going to end up losing all their credibility. And I wonder, I don't know if they have adequate disclaimers on there, because I wonder if at some point there's going to be some people who end up losing a lot of money in these cryptocurrencies. I wonder if they could bring some kind of lawsuit against CNBC for their constant touting of the cryptocurrency without actually, uh, you know, being fair and balanced, without, you know, really giving any time to the other side that, hey, this thing could all be a bubble. This is all a bunch of nonsense. These things might have no value at all, and they might go to zero. They never talk about that, right? And, and so we'll see. I mean, maybe there's some disclaimers that they think they can hide behind that scroll on the screen. Uh, but I would think that they ought to know better, and they should be a little bit more careful, especially considering, you know, how much they cheerled the NASDAQ bubble. This thing is way worse, right, than that bubble. And I think the losses are going to be bigger because not all the NASDAQ stocks went to zero, right? Some of them survived. That's not going to be the case with all these cryptocurrencies. I think they're all going to zero or practically zero. They're going to be close enough. You know, I'm looking at Tether, which is now the ninth biggest cryptocurrency by market cap at about $2.7 right? Because that one, in theory, is backed by dollars. But it's been gaining on the list. I think in a few days, it might be the seventh biggest cryptocurrency. The key is... When is it going to be the biggest? The market cap of Bitcoin is about $105 billion, and the market cap of Tether is $2.7 billion. One day, the market cap of Tether is going to be higher than the market cap of Bitcoin. The only question is, how much time is going to go by between those two events, and, and what will the market cap be of Tether and Bitcoin uh, when they cross?